So if you have your Bible with you today, let's turn to the uh, 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And we'll only be reading from verse 6 to verse 12 today. And then we'll look at those verses. Luke 23, 6 to 12. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man, that is Jesus, was a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad For he desired for a long time to see him because he had heard the many things about him and hoped to see some kind of miracle done by him. Then he questioned Jesus with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused Jesus. Then Herod with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked Jesus and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent them back to Pilate. From that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. For previously they had been at enmity with one another. Amen. Here we have a, a, a story that's only in the Gospel of Luke. It's an insert, it's, it's a, a little insider knowledge that we don't get anywhere else in any of the other Gospels. We have the key players, Herod, no, it's Pilate, Herod and Jesus. And the bit players are the, the uh, chief priests, scribes and the men of war together with Herod. It begins with Pilate. And Pilate, remember, was in a dilemma. He had interviewed Jesus and he had found him innocent of anything deserving death. He had found him guiltless. And by the requirement of the law, he was to set him free. He had been offered no bribe. Let's not think that... that, uh, Pilate was a righteous man. For the right kind of money, you get the right kind of verdict. But Pilate hadn't been offered any of those kind of things. And he'd done a a preliminary investigation. Asked Jesus. Jesus had answered. Found nothing deserving death. And was wanting to let Jesus go. But the Jews, the chief priests and the scribes. The chief priests, we think of the chief priests as They were the captains of the temple. They were the leaders of the organization. We would think of them today as the the board of directors of the church. They were the the people who controlled the economy and the business, the ins and the outs of, of the church, of the temple. And the scribes, the scribes were their lawyers. They were the people who knew all the ins and outs, the ways to twist the law to get what you wanted. And so they're making their case to Pilate. And I remember because Pilate is a Roman and they are Jews and it is a time of high festival, a holy time, they actually can't go into Pilate's house. So they're probably in the courtyard. Pilate's in his judgment seat, sitting. It's like a, like a pulpit really, except it's a chair. And he's sitting there. And the Jews are on the other side of the courtyard outside. So if you imagine we open those back doors and it's like me having to have a conversation with somebody who's standing on the outside of those doors. And they're shouting in at at Pilate. Could you imagine being in a court of law and the lawyer standing outside the courtroom shouting at the judge? Crazy. So you can imagine Pilate, and this is first thing in the morning, Pilate's not in the best mood. He's trying to find a way of getting Jesus off. We're told in one of the other Gospels that Pilate's wife had had a dream. And in that dream, she was told to have nothing to do with Jesus. And she says to Pilate, have nothing to do with that innocent man. Now the Jews kind of sense 
something's about to happen here. They kind of sense that Pilate's on the fence. Jesus could be let free and the, the Jews really don't want that. They need this done fast. They need this done first thing in the morning so that they can get on with the rest of their religious ceremonies. They, they have to get back to the business of worshipping God. So they need to kill Jesus as quick as possible. And as Pilate is on the fence and he's hemming and high and he's back and forth, the Jews were told in another gospel, cry out, if you release this man, you're no friend to Caesar. And things begin to change. Jesus right away, or Pilate right away is on his guard. You see, the Jews had got Pilate in trouble before. Pilate, when he arrived in Jerusalem and he took up his residency, his fort, the Andrea Fortress or Antonia Fortress Flot, um, was on the corner of the temple. And the Jews hated that. The Jews hated that the, the Romans were occupying the temple. So when Pilate arrived in all his pomp, you ever seen Romans on the TV with their horns? And their standards and their, their big thrills and their white horses and their chariots. They really liked to kind of make a show when they arrived. When he arrived, he brought these ornate shields with the faces of the emperor on them and, and of their gods. And he brought them in and he mounted them on the walls of the temple. And the Jews went crazy about this. This is blasphemy. We can't have any idols. We can't have any images in our temple. Oh, and they went crazy. And Pilate was like, like I care. And he left them up. So the Jews went over his head. The Jews actually went to Caesar. And they complained to Caesar, Tiberius. And Caesar was like, what's going on here? See, the Jews had a terrible reputation of being rebels, of always causing problems. They were a troublesome people. Now, they were a profitable people. They knew how to make money. The difficulty was keeping them under control. And so Caesar, right away, said to Pilate, Sharte, get things under control. And so Pilate then took down the shields and he took it as a slight, as a, an insult. His authority, his power, the thing that he had done to really, we say in Ireland, bug, to annoy, rate us, you know, that kind of thing. The thing that he had done just to make everybody cross and annoyed, he then had to get, and he lost face, not just with the Jews, but with the emperor. And it nearly cost him his position. It nearly cost him his job. It nearly cost him his life. And as soon as the Jews pulled out their big, big card, Caesar! Right away, Pilate knows he's in trouble. Right away, Pilate knows he's on difficult ground. Here's an innocent man. Jesus has done nothing wrong. He should, by the law, release him. But yet, here are these angry, violent, bloodthirsty men at the back of the room howling for his blood. And they threaten Pilate. They threaten him that he might lose his livelihood. That he might lose his respect, his position. He's worked hard to get this. He married the right people, did the right things. Now it's all on at stake. And he's looking for a way out. How do I get out of this situation that I'm not condemning Jesus and I'm not letting him go? How do I get out of this situation? And we're told here in verse 6, when Pilate heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he was a Galilean, he immediately sees a way out. He immediately sees a, an open door that he can escape the, either having to condemn a, a, an innocent man to death or be in trouble with Caesar. And he says here, when he knew that Jesus belonged to the jurisdiction, the area, the kingdom, kingdom of Herod, he sent him to Herod. And that means the word sent there is a really interesting word. It, it, it's the Greek word for to pass the buck. To, it's one court sent. It's a, a, an official 
law word. It means to, to pass it over to someone else. It goes to the higher court or a bigger court. And Herod wasn't a larger court. Because Pilate is in control of Jerusalem. Pilate is in, in control of all of this region. He's the highest authority in the land in this region. But it seems as if he is making some kind of grand gesture to Herod. He, he's making this kind of honor to Herod. Though I am the highest judicial legal authority in this area... I surrender him to you. I recognize your authority. And Pilate must have thought, this is a genius move. I get to escape and send him to Herod. Now Herod, this is Herod Antipatus. I guess how you pronounce his name. He is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the man who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Herod the Great was the man who killed all those infants in, in Jerusalem. This is his son, his youngest son. Now, I won't go through all the drama of their family. My goodness, those people had drama in their families. They were crazy. But this is the man who has history. The man, when you, the Herod you read about in the, in the, the Gospels, this is him. He, through this plotting and scheming was able to get become king of this area replaced his brother and all the rest again I won't bore you with historical drama but this man is an absolute deviant you cannot think of a more perverted individual than this Herod he was a rich man's son like a mega rich man Herod the Great was a genius he was a military guy. He was an architect. He was a renaissance man. He, he was a woman's man and a man's man. He was a warrior. Friend of Caesar. He, he, he was like a great. That's why they call him the great. Not a great. The great. And this is his son. And this Herod is not the great. He's clever. He's got that devious cleverness. You know, schemer. Youngest child who gets everything he wants, spoilt beyond belief. If he sees it, he wants it, he takes it. That's just what it is. There was no resisting him. When he saw something, he took it. And again, the Bible has a history with this man. This man was the gentleman who, he went to visit his brother. I think it was on his brother's brother Philip's birthday in Rome. So he went to Rome to visit his brother. While he was at Rome, he met his brother's new wife, Herodias. And the two of them immediately sparked a relationship, a friendship, and developed into an affair. And Herodias left her husband, Philip, the brother of Antipius. And she moved in while Antipius was married to another lady and they were all living in the same house. Now, in Rome you could do that. In Israel you can't. What was worse, Herodias was Herod's niece. She was the daughter of his half-brother from his father's other marriage. So not only is he marrying his, his brother's wife, he's marrying his niece his brother's daughter. And the Jews, this, among the religious Jews, this is horrendous. And we know that one particular Jew, a prophet named John the Baptist, took exception to this. And he began to preach and proclaim and denounce the marriage, the marriage of Herod to Herodias. And Herod, he was infatuated with John. There was something about John, some sort of manly manness, some sort of aura, some sort of power that Herod was attracted to. And the Bible tells us Herod enjoyed listening to the message of John the Baptist. But in order to protect him from the anger, the wrath of Herodias, 
Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, the Bible says, uh, not the Bible, Ireland says at least. Women, this woman was incensed and wanted to kill John the Baptist. She was going to do anything she could to kill him. And to protect him, Herod puts him in jail under guard. Not because he's done any crime, but to protect him from the anger, the wrath of this woman. And we all know the story during some sort of party, some sort of festival. Herodias' daughter, no more than a child, gets up and dances. We, the Bible doesn't tell us, tell us her name, but history does. Her name was Salome. She gets up and dances for Herod and his guests. And she does such a illicit job. She incites him such so that he is enthusiastic about her dancing. And he makes a boast in front of all his important friends. This deviant, this wicked man, this bad man. He says, I will give you anything you want in my kingdom, blah, blah, blah. Makes a huge boast. She goes back to her mom and says, Woohoo! Woohoo! Blank check, mom, what will we ask for? And his mom, first thing she says is the head of John the Baptist. And this is the man who took the head of John the Baptist. Remember, we're told that the Bible, the Bible tells us that John the Baptist got his head chopped off and his head was put on a, on a platter, a big serving dish, like the ones you put in the oven or something you'd serve a turkey or a Christmas ham on. And it's brought into the, the festivities and served to this little girl. This is that man. This is that man. He is wicked. He, there's no vice, no sin that this man hasn't participated in and propagated. And he is a wild man. He, he was the highest authority in his area, but no one could control him. No one could could trust that he would do the right thing or do the wrong thing. There was no predicting what this man could do. So when Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, you can just imagine the Jewish chief priests pulling out their hair. They're panicking now because there's no guarantee what what Herod would do. Herod might just set him free. Herod might set him in jail. Herod might keep him as a pet. We don't know. Herod has a history of collecting prophets and keeping them in jail. Who knows what will happen to Jesus? And if it gets out what we have done to Jesus, there will be a riot. When they know that we have treated a prophet of God like the way we have treated him, there will be a riot. And also remember that they were guilty of breaking the law. And if that had came to light, that they themselves may be prosecuted for breaking Jesus' rights. There's a lot at stake here. There's a lot at stake here. Hope that's not a critique about my preaching. <laughs> and so Jesus is sent to Herod. And the Bible tells us now that now when Herod saw Jesus, he became exceedingly glad. I love that word exceedingly glad. It means overjoyed, like hyper excited. We're talking fanboy enthusiasm. It's like a Star Wars nerd meeting George Lucas. You know, it's like, oh, oh my goodness. And there is this jubilance, this, this great enthusiasm. He, I mean, he has wanted to meet Jesus for forever. Could you just imagine as they're bringing Jesus in and Pilate, or not Pilate, Herod, the deviant gets off his throne, comes up to Jesus. I have longed to meet you forever. I am like your biggest fan. Would you like a glass of wine? Is there anything we can get you? You got some grapes? What would you like? And it goes from being a judicial court into kind of like a fanboy meeting. He, he's not being tried so much when he gets to Herod. It's rather Herod just wants to be and meet with Jesus. He wants to experience Jesus. He's heard and he has the desire. 
Now remember, he listened to John the Baptist. Uh, During that time, a few years previous to this, there was still some sort of semblance of goodness or righteousness in Pilate, in Herod. He tried to protect John the Baptist. He tried to, to... Gave him the opportunity. Listened to what he was saying. And the Bible tells us that he was grieved when he had to kill. Had to kill John the Baptist. But in this episode. Here he is and he's overjoyed. He's fanboy excited. The the Bible tells us that he questioned Jesus with question after question. It's the idea that he babbled. He's so excited, he can't control himself. Have you ever met somebody who has a new puppy? And you meet the puppy for the first time, and the little puppy's tail is wagging like this, and its head is like this, and it's all over, it's trying to lick your face, and, and you can't get it down. And the people are like, oh, I'm so sorry. He's not normally like this, and it's just all over you. My neighbors have a golden retriever, and it does it, or Labrador, sorry, it's a Labrador. Uh, the same thing, only short hair. Um, and you go anywhere near it, and it's all like, I just want to love you. It jumps up on top of you, and it's a massive big dog, and it's all trying to lick your face and eat you, and just, you know, oh, I just want to be your friend. That's the essence we get from Herod meeting Jesus. I mean, he just wants to be Jesus' friend. Oh, Jesus! And you can imagine the stupid questions, can't you? So, so explain to me how it works. How do miracles work? How do you heal people? I mean, can you do just, is it a certain time of day? Do you have to drink some sort of potion? Do you, you know, do you use an oil? What do you, what do, you do? And he says, blah, 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 blah. And Jesus probably doesn't have a chance to answer any questions because question after question after question after question after question after question. Could you imagine like how ridiculous? So, so if I chop this guy's arm off, you can imagine the slave holding the grapes going, what? If I chop this man's arm off, can you heal it? I heard that you brought someone back to the dead and you can see all the servants going, oh no, 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 no. There is this, just wants to be friends in some sort, but not even. He wants to be entertained. He sees Jesus as a source of entertainment. And he desires to be entertained. But the Bible shows us something unique here. This is the only recorded time this happened in the Bible. Jesus said nothing. Of all of the inquiries, of all of the questions, of all of the exuberance and excitement, Jesus didn't answer Herod anything. He stood there silent as the grave. There was no communication. Now with Pilate, Jesus answered his questions. And Jesus tried to help Pilate as much as possible. But with Herod, none. There's nothing there. And immediately, when Herod doesn't get what he wants, when there's no entertainment provided, the Bible tells us, In verse 10, first of all, it tells us that the chief priests and the scribes were there and that they were accusing Jesus vehemently or aggressively. Now they know, remember I told you, they know that there's no predicting what Herod can do. The Jews have no control over Herod. I mean, they have... Herod does not care about the Jews whatsoever. And they can't guarantee the outcome. They can't control the outcome. And they're petrified, terrified that Jesus might be let off or incarcerated, put in jail, sent to Caesar. Who knows what might happen? And so they're there and they are spewing forth accusation after accusation. They're, they're everything and anything that they can think of to say against Jesus. All the untruths are just pouring out. But we're not told in the text that it had any effect on Herod. They're at the back of the room. They wouldn't have been because Herod wasn't a Jew. He was an Edomite on his father's side and a Sumerian on his mother's side. 
he was thrice unclean, if you want to put it that way. They really didn't like him. And then again, we were told in, in verse 11, then Herod began to mock Jesus. But in the Greek it says, they considered him nothing. They decided that he was of no importance. In the old English, it says, made naught of him. Considered him nothing, a null, a nobody. Herod decides in his heart, together with his men, maybe he's a bit embarrassed because he catches himself on that he's been behaving in such a childish, girly, entertain me way. And all of a sudden, he's getting no responses and he's looking a bit awkward in front of his mates or his, his men of war, his war council. Not soldiers, per se, but personal guard and personal attendants. They were violent men. Think of a, a mafia boss with their capos. They were men of war. They were his strategy men. All of them bloodthirsty killers. And here is Jesus disrespecting and showing no hostility or the return of Herod's hospitality. And as quick as quick he turns. As quick as quick he turns. From being enthusiastic. As enthusiastic and as happy as he was to see Jesus. Now when he's not getting what he wanted. Now that he's not getting his own needs met. Now that Jesus isn't dancing to his tune. Perform for me monkey. Perform. There is a switch. A transformation and a change. And as enthusiastic as he was and overjoyed. Now he is hateful. Now he is scornful. Now he is full of mockery and contempt. The feeling that Jesus is nothing, that he is beneath him. He must have thought in his mind, now all those stories were just lies. Who is this nothing? This nobody. Interesting fact. Herod had built lots of cities in his area. One particular city, the city of Tiberias on the, the Sea of Tiberias, which is later called, was one of the big building projects of that time. It's thought that, that Herod was about, about 50 years old at this point, so he's not a child. He's 50 years old. He behaves like a child, but he's not a child. He's 50 years old. And he had constructed this city, and he had bought the land cheap, and he built the city on it. And it turns out the reason why the, the, the land was cheap, it was because it was a graveyard. It was built on a, on a graveyard overlooking the sea. And so the Jews considered like the most defiled, unholy place. And nobody would live there. None of the Jews would live there by the Sea of Galilee. No one would go near it because it was a, the city of dead people. It was built on everything was defiled by dead people. Jews just wouldn't have that. And so Herod had to forcefully import immigrants from other, pieces, other parts of the country and slaves. And they forced them to live in Galilee. And hence why Galilee had such a terrible reputation. Can anything good come from Galilee? Also interesting fact is that Jesus' father Joseph, who was a carpenter, Jesus was the son of a carpenter. Wasn't necessarily a carpenter, but was the son of a carpenter. He, and we all know that that was one who builds homes. They probably participated in the building of that city. It's really interesting to see how all these things come together. And so here's this man, a laborer, standing before a king. The king probably has embarrassed himself by his enthusiasm. And now he considers him nothing. And that word contempt, that word to consider of no importance, to have no relativeness to your life. And because of that, they begin to mock Jesus. The word mock is not a, we don't use the word mock really. They ridicule him. They disrespect him. They make him feel like he's nothing in that sense. They make fun of him, sport of him. 
might think, well, sticks and stones will break my bones, but these men were like, I want to use the word bitchy, you know, they were like really, really harsh in their mockery. And they go so far to take a splendid robe. The word is, means bright, shiny, colorful. We don't know what color it was. But it was a royal robe. It was a, a, a robe of a king. And they adorned Jesus in it. So they know that he's there because the Jews have been calling him, saying that Jesus has been proclaiming himself king of the Jews. And in order to annoy, frustrate, anger, to get under their skin, the Jews, Herod dresses Jesus to play the part. He dresses him to look like he's a king. Now, he still just looks like a normal person like you and me. He's, there's nothing regal or splendid about how Jesus looks. He's just a working kind of guy. He doesn't have the fancy haircuts and the manicured beards and the, the, the painted fingernails and all the rings and all the bling and the splendid robes. He's just a working man. He's just a normal fellow like you and me. And Herod and his cronies belittle Jesus. An earthly king belittling the king of heaven. An unrighteous and perverted individual revealing his thoughts and feelings on righteousness. This man has nothing. There's nothing about this man that's important. Let's see mock him. And then they send him back to Pilate. He sends him back to Pilate. And this was a kind of compliment back to Pilate. I find nothing wrong with this man. Therefore you can have him back. And so. By sending him back to Pilate. He's actually. Confirming Jesus' innocence. He's actually confirming that he found no guilt. There's nothing in this man that I want or see or need. I mean, just, just, it's, it's the, gentleman, the man's a fool. And he sends him back to Pilate. And the Bible tells us that from that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other because previously they had been at odds. It was actually Herod and Tippus who had led. Remember I told you that Pilate had put the, the shields in the temple with the, the faces painted on them and that offended the Jews. Well, it was actually Herod who had gone to speak to Tiberius about that. Not to get friendship with the Jews, but just to get authority over Pilate. And so those, that began an unfriendship. I don't know what's the word. And then Pilate was guilty of, in a return action, Pilate was guilty of killing some Galileans who were offering up their sacrifices. And the Bible tells us that he mixed the blood of the Galileans with the blood of their sacrifices and offered it up. And it was a great insult to Herod that he had done it because they were Herod's people. But over Jesus, the two of them found friendship. Not that it was a great noble friendship. It was a friendship of, of convenience. Their hatred of the Jews brought them together. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so Pilate and Herod united over Jesus against the Jews. That's the story. And yet there's so much from that story. As always, so much from that story that you and I can learn from. First and foremost, Pilate and his trying to not deal with the truth. His fear of man that became a snare. He had the power and the ability to set Jesus free. Yet because of his fear of man, because he was afraid that he might lose his his position, lifestyle, source of income, he chose to do, I guess you would say, the lesser of evil, which is still evil. He neglected to do his duty because of the fear of people. And it ends, this ends up costing Pilate his career. 
and his life and everything else that goes on. It's very easy to refuse to do the right thing. It's very easy to become afraid of the people around us. It's very easy to be swayed and be just go along with the crowd. Give them what they want just for a quiet life. Just so that you don't have to deal with all the drama of the mob. I mean, God had communicated. Remember that his wife had received a, a dream and she communicated that dream to her husband saying, have nothing to do with this innocent man. Oh. And yet he chose to try and escape his duty. Now he, he couldn't get away with it and he has to do it again. But there was the tendency to try and find a way out. To try and, and not for the good of Jesus. It wasn't about protecting Jesus. It was about protecting himself. And sadly, that is a, a fear that is common to men. The act of self-preservation. The act of doing what's right in my own eyes for me and mine. And not doing what is righteous. What is right. What is required by the law and by God. He thought he get, could get away with it. But history tells us he couldn't. Divine truth tells us that he couldn't. And then Herod, the deviant, the despicable despot, the man who had everything, the man of the world who wanted to be entertained. Have you ever heard people saying, if only people could see miracles today, if only... We could go out there and heal the sick and raise the dead. The world would see and know the power of God and turn back. Yet, here Christ refuses even to, to show why. Because he knew what's in a man's heart. And he knew that, that Herod was not interested at all in salvation. His heart was so hardened, so calloused, so dark that he had no love for God, no interest. There was nothing in him that was seeking truth or righteousness. All he wanted to do was be entertained. To have a good laugh. To experience something exciting that he could tell his grandchildren about. To be a part of something new. Maybe receive a little miracle himself. Oh look. Jesus knew his heart. And knew that he wasn't serious. And that he was a dirty rotten sinner. And Jesus doesn't respond. And then we see immediately don't we? The true. The veil is lifted. And we see the true face of Herod. In his contempt and in his mockery. In his hatred poured out upon Christ. The true face of the man of the world is when they can't get what they want from Jesus, when they can't use Jesus for their own entertainment, they pour out contempt and scorn and anger. Let's never think that the people of this world will ever just naturally come to Jesus. Or if we give them what they want, that they'll come to Christ that they'll thank us and love us and that they'll be good Christian people no the, the Barnard brothers two pastors from Scotland I can't remember which one it was um, they made this wonderful quote that's mutilated today that it, if, we want, if we feed the church if we feed the people of the world the world in the church then we must continue to feed them the things of this world. Meaning that if you want to get all of the unbelievers in the church, well then you have to behave like an unbeliever. You have to give them the things that unbelievers want. But to make them stay, then you have, must continually feed them, entertain them. Jesus 
had nothing to do with it. Herod in his contempt, Herod in his hatred, Herod in his mockery reveals the true and real heart of a man. He desired to see Jesus. He enthusiastically came. Remember, he was a fanboy, like a little puppy. Oh, this is so good. Yet, truly in his heart, he considered Jesus to be of no importance, to be of no relevance for his life. We must never be deceived in thinking like the world and offering the world what we think it wants or what it says it wants. It will never thank us. And then we see the biblical response to scorn and mockery and people accusing you. Jesus didn't open his mouth. Think. Here he is standing before this old pervert who's trying to charm him and question him, seeking some sort of source of entertainment. And Jesus has nothing to do with it. He doesn't give a finger, doesn't, you know, doesn't, so that you can't take the hand, doesn't entertain, isn't polite. You'd think, well, Jesus, you, know, you could have just said, hello, sir. He's a, this man is a king after all. You could have been polite. You could have been respectful. But Jesus didn't answer at all. Nothing. When we in this world face mockery, accusation, scorn, contempt. Because the Bible says that if you belong to Christ, you will suffer like Christ. Indeed, the Bible says that friendship with the world puts you at odds with God. That you become the enemy of God, the opposition of God. Jesus said... Beware when all the world speaks good of you. Because then you belong to it. You are of it. Indeed, if you are standing for Christ, you will suffer like Christ. It's guaranteed. It's promised. It's part and parcel. It's the weight of the cross that we must bear. And we cannot be afraid as Christians, as followers of Christ. And we also must respond the right way. It is in our earthly nature, isn't it? If you hit me, I hit you back. I'm an Irishman. If you hit me, I'll tell you. No, you know, that's Irish. Right there. We go 100% immediately. Whoop! Better to stop it quick than let it go on long. So, it's our human nature, isn't it? We just, something happens to us, we snap right back. Husbands and wives. Ah, children and parents. Ah, somebody says something and somebody says something. Somebody says, it's getting lighter, it's getting lighter, it's getting lighter. In my house, in my mommy's house, it used to get quieter. The angrier my mom got, the quieter she got. And when it ended in a look, you knew you were dead. <laughs> You're like, oh, I'm dead. I tried to run away from home, but it rains. I had to come home. You know? But there is this, this escalation. This escalation of events that make it worse. That's our human nature, isn't it? But we see the biblical example. Jesus didn't allow things to escalate. Jesus didn't give back. Jesus didn't return, return, return. This mockery, this scorn, this contempt. Think these wicked, perverted, degenerate men who were party to every sin that we can't even think of. They're condemning and ridiculing Jesus. They're, they're counting him as an unrighteous man. Think of the hypocrisy there. Think of the, the... If that was to happen to us, if somebody that you knew who was a complete degenerate, complete wicked person, 
And then they begin to speak, insinuate, gossip, slander you, and say that you're guilty of doing all the things that they have done. There would be a, a little response. I would hope there would be a little response in you. You might not speak immediately, because these are all respectful friends who were all well brought up. But there would be a, you might not say it with your mouth, but you'd say it with your heart. You might not say it out loud, but you say it in your head. I should have said this. I should. And you'll, you'll go, go through the conversation time and time and time again. I should, should have said this. I should have said that. Jesus directs us how a Christian should respond. Says nothing. Indeed, it is the fulfillment of Scripture. Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. It is very easy in our flesh to strike back. But it's not Christian. It's not Christ-like. We should muzzle our mouth. Muzzle our heart. We remember the teaching from the, the book of James. The danger of the tongue. It is produced forest fires. Devastation, destruction through a simple comment. Beloved, Christ demonstrates to us very clearly the Christian reaction to a situation where we're scorned, mocked, held in contempt. How we should respond to the ungodly or the godly response, should we say. And it is that if you've got nothing good to say, say nothing at all. Christ submitted himself under God and trusted that God's will would be done. I remember way back when we started the church, I remember hearing an interview with John MacArthur and he told of an experience uh, when he was going through a, a controversy there in America and lots of people were saying terrible things about John MacArthur. It seemed like uh, the majority of Christians in the United States were against John MacArthur at one point during the 90s. And, uh, and the church was inundated. They didn't have emails back then. They had phone calls and they had letters. And so people would... Send, I'm sure they had emails because I know Phil Johnson had emails, but they, they, the church got e- like real letters. And so they had a ministry team whose job it was to open the letters and read them and then you know, respond to those letters. And John MacArthur's daughter volunteered one day to go and be part of that ministry team. And so she sat there and she was reading all these letters of accusations and scorn and mockery that were poured out upon, their parent, upon her parent, her father. And she began to get more and more indignant, more and more angry. The more she read of all these people lying and making false assumptions about her father, the she, she, steam was coming out of her ears. You, know, you could just imagine the, the mama bear kind of thing going on there. My dad, my dad would never do that to me. And so what happened was, the people would leave their phone numbers or something, or people would phone into the church. And so she began to respond. And she began to say, listen, listen, I'm John MacArthur's daughter, and I know what you're saying is false about my daddy. And the haters were loving this. The haters were like, we have John MacArthur's daughter on the line. So they were sending back more, and, they were, and she was responding, sent little notes, my dad's nothing like that, you're a liar. And they were, they were loving this. And then one day she happened to mention this to John MacArthur, and John was like, Please don't. Please don't respond to the haters. John MacArthur has made it his policy all the way through his ministry that he would not respond to 
the slurs and arrows and wicked words and accusations, the scorn and the mockery of those around him and those things made against him. That he would leave it to God and leave it in God's hands. I think it's one of the keys to why his ministry has been so long. He has not been embroiled in any controversy, well, lots of controversy, no scandals or anything this year because he has guarded his mouth. The word of God has set a muzzle upon his heart and upon his mouth and he's been able to control himself and he has not responded in a wicked way or in a, in a you slap me and I slap you back. In MacArthur's commentaries on this particular uh, piece of scripture, he says that this demonstrates three specific truths to us. The first being that Pilate was right in his verdict of innocent when it came to Jesus, not guilty. That Jesus was guiltless, sinless, did not deserve what happened to him. Second, that Herod and Pilate together act as two independent witnesses speaking on behalf of Jesus. They were his defendants. Now Herod, no, sorry, Pilate was indifferent. He had no dog in this fight. He did not care. He simply did his investigation and found Jesus guiltless. Herod, well Herod, the Bible tells us that Herod had reportedly sought to kill Jesus. Remember some Pharisees came to Jesus and said, flee quickly because Herod is plotting to kill you. And then Jesus tells them, go and tell that old fox. I'll go about my normal business and do whatever I'm going to do. Well, Herod wasn't on Jesus' side either, but yet find no reason to condemn Jesus, find nothing interesting about him at all. He was boring and sent him back to Pilate. So we see that this scripture tells us again that Jesus, though he didn't have two defendants, two witnesses to speak for him, they act as default witnesses. So when we're reading this, we understand that there were high legal, jurisdictional, important people who were involved in this case and they found him guiltless, that he was sinless. That what happened to Jesus was unjust. And then thirdly, it demonstrates the validity, the truthfulness of prophecy. Biblical prophecy. We think of the, the, the prophecies made in the book of Acts. No, book of Acts. The book of Psalms. 20, Psalm number 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth have set themselves. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast them away at the course we see there the Bible prophesying that the kings, the governors, those who sit in authority, the rulers, that they would take counsel against the Lord's anointed. And then again in Psalm 22, verse 7. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head. They waggle their head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That the Messiah would be mocked. That the, the Messiah would be held in scorn. Again we saw Isaiah 53 verse 7. That he was oppressed and afflicted yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. As sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened up not his mouth. Old Testament prophecy. But then we also have... The confirmation of Jesus' own prophecy, where Jesus in his third denial, or third prediction, sorry, of the cross, he clearly says that he would be handed over to the Gentiles, that the chief priests and the scribes would hand him over to the Gentiles, 
and that they would condemn him, mock him, scourge him and hand him over to be crucified. We have the biblical witness. It demonstrates the integrity of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible. We can trust it. The things that were said in the Old Testament came to pass in the New. The prophecies of Jesus, the words, the things that he said were going to happen, happened exactly. There was no spiritual interpretation of it. There was no kind of maybe, perhaps, you can fit that in maybe if you kind of go like this with it. What Jesus said was happened, happened. Simple, honest, real, realistic. Not complicated. A child could understand, see, and comprehend it. Therefore we know that the words of Jesus and of the Bible are true. And that we can hold fast them. And we know that what has been said that has not yet taken place. Those things that Jesus has promised will come to part. Will happen. He said that he will one day return. We can trust that. We know that here's a man who knows the truth. He has given the warning to all people everywhere that we either repent or, and receive him as a saviour. Acknowledge him as our Lord. Live our lives according to his teachings and his ways. Or we must take responsibility for ourselves. That one day we must stand in defense of our own lies and our own rebellion, our own wickedness. And where Christ was silent in the face of Herod, there's coming a day when he will be the judge. The Bible says he will judge the living and the dead. And he will no longer be silent. He will no longer allow wickedness in his sight. He will no longer turn the cheek. He will deliver the blow. He will give the sentence. Guilty. Beloved, we see because of the things that happened to Jesus and the things that he said would happen that they happened, that we can trust, that we must trust, we must acknowledge That he is true. He has said heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. Beloved. Let's not be like Pilate. Seeking to escape our duty. Trying to please wicked people. At the cost of an innocent man's life. Pilate didn't defend Jesus. Let's not be like Pilate. Let's take a stand in this world. Let's not be like Herod who sought to be entertained and when he couldn't be entertained hated Christ, mocked him, wanted nothing to do with him and dismissed him from his sight went back to pleasuring himself in the world. Beloved, let us not respond like the people of this world in like kind tooth for tooth and an eye for an eye. Let us be Christ-like. Let us live our lives in such a way that when men look upon us, they wonder and are amazed. Let us leave judgment to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I shall repay. When the people of this world mock us, scorn us, hold us in contempt, let us just Patiently wait upon the Lord. And he shall show himself true. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you, Lord God, for the, the gift of life that you've given us through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, O oh God, that you would help us. That our lives would be shaped, molded, transformed. That, Lord, we would represent you in this world in a correct and proper way help us lord to repent of our worldliness and of our fleshliness lord we are also guilty of responding in a non-christian way of 
being unreformed in our nature. Lord, forgive us for not holding a guard over our mouths and over our hearts, of not putting a muzzle on our conversations. Lord, forgive us for being upset when people hold us in contempt, would mock us and scorn us. We pray, O God, that you would glorify yourself, that you would demonstrate that you are true and real, that, Lord, that you would convict the sinner of his sin, that you would draw him into righteousness. Lord, we ask all this for your own name's sake. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.